Luke chapter 19 this morning. It's probably a familiar passage for a lot of you. If you've spent any time in church, if you've been in any Sunday school class, it's got to be like a top five Sunday school lesson, I would think. I was trying to think what they might be. You have like Noah the ark, David and Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den, Joseph, Coat of Men and Colors, and Zacchaeus in a sycamore tree. Uh, so you've probably heard this passage at some time uh, in your life, probably as a little child. It's popular because it's a, a really good story. Luke obviously is captured by this scene. And as he relays it, he gives you really interesting detail that paints a picture for you. It's a good story. It's captivating to the mind. It's interesting that Luke is the only gospel writer that actually records this. I wouldn't have guessed that before I studied this. Um, but it's, you find it here in Luke and in Luke alone. There's a lot of color that is, is painted for you in this picture of Jesus. <clears throat> I hope, though, in the familiarity of it, in the kind of Sunday school story of it, that we don't miss the impact and the main truth that Jesus seems to be setting forward for us here through the gospel writer of Luke. I was thinking, as, as we have God's word, it's such, especially as we kind of approach this time of the Reformation. Uh, celebration, and we think of the centrality of the word of Scripture alone in the in the midst, at the center, at the heart of what's taking place in the Reformation. We give ourselves to the Scripture, and it's this life-giving, life, faith, persevering gift that the God gives us. And we often can ignore it, we often take it for granted, and yet there it is, that beautiful gift. And so we come to something like the Gospel of Luke. We've been in Luke for several months now. For most of us, this will be the only time, maybe once or twice in your life, that you spend this much time working through the Gospel of Luke. You know, it, it may be the only time in your life, not that you read it, but that you go through it like this. So I hope we can take advantage of seeing Zacchaeus in this context now of slowly making our way through Luke. And now we have the story of Zacchaeus in a very pivotal spot in Luke that hopefully gives us some better understanding, some, some clear understanding of what's taking place. The scripture speaks to us in, in imperatives and in, in statements and facts. So much of our faith is built on these truth claims and true statements of definitions of what it means to be justified and what it means to be sanctified and propitiation and these kind of statements. And it's important that we know those. It's absolutely important. That's why we feel strongly about catechisms and creeds and some of those things is lifting the truths of Scripture that serve as our foundation for faith that gives us an ability to sort of articulate it well to others. And, and, and really, here's what we affirm, here's what we deny. And so they're of great value. And yet at the same time, the Lord gives us glimpses kind of in the Old Testament narratives and the Gospels that we see how the Gospel works in a real human, interesting dynamic that gives us a whole new color on sort of our statement of fact, on those imperatives of Scripture. So, yes, here's what we believe, and now we get this glimpse of the gospel in this encounter with Jesus 
and Zacchaeus. And I find that so rich that, that God uses all the different genres and, and ways Scripture speaks to speak and add color to the truth of His gospel in, in different ways. This morning he speaks to us about the gospel through this story. And really, when you come to Zacchaeus in this episode in chapter 19, you have a lot of these themes of Luke that we've been tracing now for months all sort of boiled down and you see them popping up in this episode. You see, once again, the gospel of the kingdom invading the domain of darkness. The mission of God in sending Jesus. We saw it earlier in chapter 4 as he's come to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. We see it slightly differently now here at the end of our text in verse 10. He's come to seek and to save those who are lost. So you see the mission of God explained. You see Jesus in his, his compassion and his mercy that it seems to always be directed towards the outcast, the poor, the sinner, the one who you wouldn't expect to get it. By now, we see that pattern over and over again. We see it once again this morning. We see that when one encounters Jesus, he leaves changed. Sometimes it is angry and the gospel hardens the heart. Oftentimes it's with eyes to see and a new joy and they leave rejoicing. So you see a lot of these themes kind of all boiled down and then shining out once again in this story of Zacchaeus. And so in the fascinating details, which we'll look at, don't lose these themes that we've been building now exploding across the pages to us as kind of as he approaches Jerusalem, these final encounters Adam's been tracking for us, and now we come to this final one. For some time, this is repetitive now, for some time Jesus has been setting his face toward Jerusalem. Chapter 9, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And in that is that call to discipleship, follow me. When you follow Jesus, you're following him on his mission to Jerusalem, which is to die to self for the sake of others. It is the glory of God, not through your self-promotion, but through bearing your cross for his name's sake, for the advancement of the kingdom. And so he has set his, his face towards Jerusalem, and we have tracked that all along now. So we're now in the middle of chapter 19. Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. We're two sermons away. So for us, he enters Jerusalem the beginning of November. All right? But he's only a couple days away. He's in Jericho. Jericho is just a few hours from Jerusalem. Jesus is passing through on his way to Jerusalem. Passover is coming, and Jesus is on his way. This is really the last encounter that he is going to have before he reaches Jerusalem. Anticipation for this is building. You can see it in, chapter, in this chapter in verse 11 which will be next week's sermon. But in verse 11, it says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The crowds are getting thicker. The anticipation and curiosity is growing. It is Passover. They are headed to Jerusalem. Everything is, is converging on a big moment in 
people know that. There's a sense of something's coming. Now it's misplaced anticipation, a lot of it. And yet, the, the anticipation is growing. So Jesus is passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. The crowds are gathering. It seems just mainly to catch a glimpse of him as he passes through. They seem to be moving along with him. It's getting you know, thicker and thicker with people. All right, now let's look at this scene just for a minute, the first few verses that kind of paint this picture for us. <clears throat> the crowds are deep. They're following Jesus. Zacchaeus, what do we know about Zacchaeus? He's a wee little man. <laughs> Isn't that so, like, politically incorrect nowadays? Like, if you were saying now, it would be like he's a vertically challenged man and a little vertically challenged man was he, right? But he's a, he's a wee little guy, all right? Just a short little fella. Um, so that's an interesting detail about him that plays into our story. So he's a little guy, and he's a tax collector. Now, if you've been going through Luke, you know, Tax collector is a major red flag. They got a terrible rap, and justifiably so. So Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Just in review, a tax collector. It's someone who has turned on his own people in order to make themselves wealthy and advanced. So Rome has conquered these territories. They let the people stay in these territories instead of like taking them hostage away. But as they stay in these territories, they then levy this large tax against all of these people. And so that money eventually is going to make its way back to Rome. And so they take a census of all these areas and they understand, okay, this is about the money that we should be gathering from this territory and then they find people who, within the nation, who are Israelites, who are willing to kind of go into cahoots with Rome and turn on their own people and become tax collectors, collecting this money from the people to give to Rome. And here's how the tax collectors make their money. You probably know this, but, okay, Rome expects this much money. Any money you collect over that, it's yours. I mean, this was legal, but it was as ugly and terrible as it could get, it turned into all kinds of deceit and bribery and lying and theft. And the worst for the people would be the disloyalty of someone of your own nation going into cahoots with godless Rome and making themselves a wealthy fortune off your back. To elevate it, Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. He says he's the chief tax collector which means he's really successful at what he's done. He's climbed the ladder. And so now he's not out in Jericho doing the dirty work himself. He's sending all of his henchmen out to do it, and then he takes a piece of everything that comes back in. It really is, Zacchaeus is like the head of the cartel in Jericho, the head of the mafia there that is full of racketeering, is full of bribery, is full of theft. You add to that, they're in Jericho. There's, as you read a little bit background on it, there's kind of three major cities where Israel pays their taxes. Jericho is one of those cities. Of those cities, Jericho is probably the wealthiest. It's on a trade route. It's right, you know, everyone going to Jerusalem just about passes through Jericho. So he is making a killing. He's making a fortune. 
And that's why Luke says he's a chief tax collector and he is really wealthy. He's the head of the mafia there in Jericho. So he's short. There's a big crowd. He's the head of the mafia. Jesus is coming through. I, this is just conjecture, but you know, he, he's interested in seeing Jesus. We know that. Why exactly, we don't know, but he is curious to see Jesus. He's got connections. He's, I'm sure he's heard a lot about him. He knows everyone else is curious, so he has an extra curiosity to see this Jesus. Perhaps he has heard that Jesus has this tendency to dine with sinners, that he often is seen with the tax collector, even in their homes, and maybe that piques his interest. He probably knew that within Jesus' inner circle, one of his disciples, the closest man to him, he has a former tax collector, Levi or Matthew as we know him. Just a few uh, verses ago in chapter 18, as Pastor Adam was speaking to us on the rich young ruler, and then we come to the Pharisee and we have the tax collector and they're both standing out there praying. And you have this contrast and in the end of this parable... It is the tax collector who walks away justified. And so perhaps there is this sense of wonder what exactly is taking place, piquing his interest. And so he goes out to catch a glimpse of Jesus. You could see that this is the one time that these people, he probably has his bodyguards and people with him as he would go out, powerful, wealthy man. It's the one time to kind of stick it to Zacchaeus so everyone gets together real tight, keeps the little guy behind him. So, you know, we're not going to let him to the front to see Jesus. There's some sort of unknown zeal for him to see Christ. He runs ahead thinking, okay, Jesus is going to pass this route. I'll get ahead of the crowd. I'll climb a tree. And Jesus is going to pass me eventually. He just has this curiosity. I don't know why. Whenever I'm picturing this, I'm picturing Danny DeVito in my head, if you know (laughs) who that actor is. You know, like him all dressed up in a suit. He seems like a powerful, wealthy little dude. So I'm picturing him in a tree. Um, So if that helps, (laughs) you can just picture Danny DeVito running ahead and climbing a sycamore tree. All right, so this then sets the context for Jesus passing through. And then there's just a few simple observations Let's read in verse 5 and 6. And when Jesus came to the place, that is where Zacchaeus had climbed the tree, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. In kind of all of the color and and sort of sensory things happening in this passage, right there is the simplicity of Zacchaeus' conversion. You almost miss it in its simplicity. But there it is. Jesus walks by. He sees Zacchaeus. He calls him by name. Zacchaeus receives him. This is point one. A lost sinner is found. Jesus has come to seek and to save. A lost sinner is found. 
Zacchaeus, for whatever interest, feels some sort of pull to go climb a tree and to see Jesus. But it is Jesus who sees Zacchaeus. He is curious about him, but Jesus has set his gaze upon Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus maybe knows some facts, knows something about Jesus, but Jesus knows Zacchaeus and he calls him by name. Whatever seeking Zacchaeus was doing, we see that Jesus was the primary seeker. He sought out Zacchaeus. That's what the end of the passage tells us. Jesus came to seek and to save. And as simple of that, we get this glimpse into conversion that Jesus seeks the sinner and he calls him unto himself. And then he makes that one willing to joyfully receive him. It's that simple in the story. Jesus seeks him, he finds a lost sinner. The Westminster Confession describes this irresistible call this way. It says, The effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. The irresistible call that Jesus sets his gaze upon Zacchaeus and he is found. He calls him by name and he is a saved man. That irresistible call, uh, we see kind of that imagery. It's not that he pulls him kicking and screaming. Sometimes that language of irresistible can make it sound like, you know, whether you want to or not, he's dragging you. But no, he changes the heart so that he joyfully receives Jesus. He joyfully receives him. Now, in our experience, in, in the human level, we look and we see sometimes it's not so quickly like that, right? Like there, there are times where it's years and years of praying for someone and you see their struggle and there seems to be a seeking and there is a questioning and there is a pull and there is a struggle. But looking at it from an eternal perspective, Jesus calls and that call is irresistible and that one will gladly receive him. We see this beautiful call. Matthew Henry in his commentary, says this, Jesus sets forth his own welcome. He opens the heart and he inclines it to receive him. Jesus saves lost sinners by invading their life. We sometimes use this language, and I, I don't know if people are thinking through it, so you don't want to you know, be too hard on them, but it's not good language to talk about, you know, I invited Jesus into my heart. Jesus invades the darkness. He calls, you respond. He makes you willing to respond. He makes you willing to receive. You seek him because he has sought you first. You love him because he has loved you first. It's what Ephesians, Philippians, they both tell us that he is working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We see 
this invasion of Jesus. We've seen this over and over and over again of Jesus Christ and his kingdom invading the darkness. We see it in the healings. We see it when he raises someone from the dead. We see it in Jesus' authority when someone trusts in him. He doesn't get an invitation. He invades and he overcomes irresistibly. And we get this beautiful picture of this in the life of Zacchaeus in just this simple little phrase here. Jesus calls his name. If you're here and you're a believer, this is how you came. Jesus called your name. He gave you a heart that was joyful to receive him. If you're here and you are not confessing Christ, that is not your hope, your rest, your comfort in this life and the life to come. Jesus calls your name, respond. Don't fight it. Joyfully come. There's Jesus drawing and wooing of you. He still calls us by name. So point number one is that a lost sinner is found. Point number two, we just have three points. Point number two is that a saved sinner is changed. We are found and we are changed. This passage makes it very clear. First we pause because we see that the crowd is, is once again not understanding and displeased what's happening in verse 7. And when they saw it, that is the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. I mean, this is the pattern over and over again, right? You can guess, you can almost see it coming now. They're grumbling, they're complaining. You see the irony of this in, chap- in verse 11. They're anticipating the kingdom of God's going to come immediately. <laughs> they just missed it. The kingdom of God has drawn near. I think Luke uses this idea specifically and on purpose of, of Zacchaeus receiving him. If you remember back chapter 9, chapter 10 in that area, as it talks about Jesus sending out the disciples into each of the towns, and he says, if they receive you, then you go and dine with them and tell them the kingdom is near. The kingdom has come to you. If they don't receive you and they reject you, then it's bad news. And here it is. Zacchaeus has received Jesus. He welcomes him in. He comes and he dines with him. And the proclamation is, the kingdom is near. This is the kingdom. The light invading the darkness. We get to verse 11 and people are still waiting. Okay, he's going to set up his kingdom immediately because we've rehearsed this. They're looking for the wrong thing. We see Jesus setting up his kingdom in the life of Zacchaeus right there. So they miss it. But then in verse 8, we see a sinner change. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. The first way we see the changed life of Zacchaeus is just freedom. That Christ sets him free from this idol of power and wealth. Zacchaeus is a slave to it. It's cost him, I'm sure, cost him most of his friendships and most of his relationships. He's turned into this slave of cheating and abusing his own people in order to grow wealthy, in order to grow powerful. He's in, that's his life, that's his world. And Jesus sets him free from these competing idols. 
I think we can all take hope and courage in that with the besetting sins and those idols that can grip our hearts, that when Jesus saves us, he sets us free. Maybe not totally free from the struggle, but he gives us the grace necessary to fight that fight and be more than conquerors in that fight against sin. He overcomes the competing idols in Zacchaeus' life of, for him, wealth and power and all of that life that it, that it meant for him. And he grants him freedom. Secondly, he grants him repentance. I mean, look at what Zacchaeus is saying here. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That's a real repentance, a real apology. It's not one of those, hey, if I've offended you, then I'm sorry. That's a, I, I recognize, here's what I've done. Imagine the humility in that type of repentance. You know, it, <clears throat> you've maybe been in one of those situations where there's someone who, some people are easier to ask forgiveness from than others. Because some you feel like, if I go and ask forgiveness, they're going to be so pleased that I'm, you know, getting humbled. And that just makes it hard. I'm sure that's how the people would have been receiving Zacchaeus, as he would, however he restored that money to him, of like, oh, yeah. And yet in humility, he makes reparations for his dishonesty. There's a repentance of heart. John Murray, in kind of his famous little book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says, the faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith. And the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. We know this, but the faith and repentance always belong together. There is no sinner that is found that isn't also changed. It always goes in that direction, in that order. They are found, then changed. But the grace of God that is makes you joyful to receive him, also gives you the strength that by the Spirit you can battle sin and by the Spirit you can see it killed in your life from one degree to another. There should be, for the one who is found, there should be this freedom, there should be this repentance. And thirdly, just specifically with Zacchaeus here, you see that he is changed man and you see it in his generosity. In, as we've gone through Luke, you, you've seen many opponents to the kingdom of God. Many opponents that have stood up and fought against the light. But I think the, probably the greatest opponent has been materialism, the love of money. As we've gone through... It, Hopefully you've seen it just recurring again and again and again. I, I'm just taking the word of a commentator on this, but doing the study estimates that about between the four Gospels, about 25% of the time in the Gospels is spent addressing love of money, materialism, and the way we use what God has given us. 25% of the Gospels addressing this materialism and this love of money because it stands so starkly in contrast to the kingdom of God and generosity. 
it, it seems to be almost fake to talk about the glory of God and his mercy and his generosity to you if that grace isn't laying hold of your life and transforming you so that you're extending that love and grace towards others. You haven't really captured just how generous the Lord was, just how generous God was in giving Jesus Christ, in sacrificing his son, in making him a curse for you, in offering you forgiveness, in giving you grace and mercy. Zacchaeus seems to have captured that, to to have understood at some sense the generosity of Christ in this invitation of him calling him. And it changes him to be a generous, radically generous person. That's the theme again and again through the Gospel of Luke. The third point, sinners found, that saved sinner is changed. And finally, we just see that Jesus saves all kinds of sinners. Jesus saves all kinds of sinners. We've seen these stories as he approaches all different types of people. But there has been this theme of the wealthy and kind of this, to this point, almost inability of a wealthy person to ever enter the kingdom. Uh, We saw this established in chapter 4, if you remember. Jesus comes, he comes to the poor and to the oppressed. Now, it is speaking spiritually so, the spiritually poor and oppressed, those who, who have nothing to offer and they recognize that. But typically, that is the one who is also very physically poor and oppressed. The one who feels like they have everything that they need, that the problems exist out there, and they have the money to keep those problems away and kind of shelter themselves from them, that is the one who, trusting in his wealth and his riches, isn't going to come to Christ. Chapter 6, as Jesus speaks, and he goes through the Beatitudes, and he starts pronouncing some of those woes, if you remember, in chapter 6. And he says, woe to the wealthy. They are not positioned well to enter the kingdom. That is, there's a lot of things for them to trust in besides Jesus Christ and his mercy and his grace. The disadvantage, woe to the wealthy. If you remember chapter 12, that was a sermon that stuck in my mind. Pastor Adam preached and talks about that wealthy man and all of his investments that he puts into building storehouses and storing things up and and there's not necessarily something wrong with his investing and his being in his you know planning for the future but he invests everything for himself in the temporary life then you remember the story in the middle of the night he dies and the one place where he's invested nothing where he's completely bankrupt that's his future the storehouses, all the extra food, all whatever, it doesn't matter. He's bankrupt where it mattered. And this temporal wealthiness leaves him eternally bankrupt. You see it again in chapter 16. We come to that passage. We're talking about being a wise steward. And then we have that division of there's two masters, there's two gods. There's God and there's money, the love of money. 
You can't serve both masters. You love the one, you hate the other. That is the conclusion. Advancing all the way up to chapter 18 to when Jesus confronts that rich young ruler and he tells, sell all that you have, follow me. And he, rich young ruler walks away so sad and depressed because that's the one thing he can't give up. That's, that's the one idol he won't let go of. It's not a matter of actually him having to sell everything, but it's him trusting in his wealth finding greater joy in that. Do you remember the conclusion where Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy, a rich man to enter the kingdom? Saying, it's impossible for the one who is resting and trusting in his riches to enter the kingdom. Well, in this story, (laughs) the camel passed through the eye of the needle. Now, Zacchaeus had a change of heart and that he was no longer resting in his riches. But you see, God saved a rich man and totally changed his heart. I think it's important because in... I think it's important in two ways. One, because you don't want to soften this call on love of money and materialism because I think it captures the heart of a lot of people in a lot of churches. And we're not free from that. That this materialism captures our attention and our heart and that we are quick to put our entire calendar, our whole budget, everything on advancing ourselves, advancing our enjoyment in this temporal earth. We're not going to make any sacrifices for the sake of others, any sacrifices for obedience to Christ. We say we are kind of in our minds, but when it comes down to we're doing what we want to do, we're spending our money on us how we want to spend it, we're spending our time exactly how we want to spend it, and there's this investment totally on the temporal. And so you understand why it hit again and again and again was this materialism and this lack of generosity. And yet at the opposite end, you know, I think you hear from us preaching against prosperity gospel all the time, but there's also kind of a poverty gospel that somehow God is pleased with you because of your lack of things. And that's growing in its, I don't know, following in this kind of monkish type of lifestyle that somehow in a lack of things, in in just not having things, Jesus is pleased with you. It's not a change of heart in your generosity. It's just, you know, I need to simplify. I need to, you know, just live a much simpler life. And somehow God is pleased with us simply by not having stuff. And that can become just as big of an idol. The important thing is that we get a theology or understanding of our finances, of our material goods, how we live. That God does not want us to pursue either prosperity or poverty. That's not the point. He wants us to be good stewards of what we have, whether we have a lot or we have a little. 
He wants us to be generous with what we have, whether we have a lot or we have a little. Generous with your money, whether you have a lot or you have a little. Generous with your time, whether you have a lot of free time or a little bit of free time. He calls us to generosity. He wants us to practice restitution for what we've stolen, whether it's a little bit or a lot, what we've been dishonest with. And he wants us to know, ultimately, that our righteousness is in Jesus Christ, not in our prosperity and not in our poverty. I think it's a good reminder for especially churches are small like ours that somehow you get this almost sense of holiness because you know the large churches they got the big buildings they got the big programs they got and you almost can just become like you know that's prosperity they got all this stuff look our building's not that big we must be holy <laughs> and you can mistake in it then for not being good stewards with what God has given you not being generous with with what God has given you. And that's the call. God saves all kinds of sinners. I think a great application for that is just to encourage us in our prayerfulness and our testimony to others. I think we're slow in our gospel evangelism sometimes because we think, well, that person is, isn't someone who's ripe for the gospel. You know, I face it on both ends in our neighborhood. Let's say I'm finding someone who, you know, they're successful, they seem to have it all together, they're, you know, on unblurred, they, they got the look, they, they're cool, they got the whole deal down. You know, my impulse is that person doesn't want to hear the gospel, they've got it all together. You have no idea what's going on in their heart. You have no idea the longing, the desire, what God might be doing in seeking them out. At the same time, for those who are, you know, seem much more desperate and in need, sometimes it feels like, ah, they're not interested in the gospel. They just want to know what I can give them physically. Again, you don't know what God's opening the heart to spiritual realities. God saves all kinds of sinners. Zacchaeus isn't the one who you think would turn to Christ, and yet he is the one who was called and joyfully received him and was changed. And then finally, as we conclude in this passage, verses 9 and 10 are so beautiful to us. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. We see this reminder of covenant, covenant promises, and what it means to be the son of Abraham. The Pharisees, they would have claimed it in their kind of religious clean ethnic heritage all the way down and the rights that they keep. And he's saying, no, the son of Abraham, the true son of Abraham, is the one who by faith depends on Christ, comes to Christ. That's the son of Abraham. We see that salvation and grace extend to him, to his household. And then that beautiful promise at the end, he has come to seek and to save those who are lost. You know, we can be confident on who is going to receive the gospel. It's sinners. That's who we should be going and bringing the gospel to. Because those are the ones that Jesus came to seek and to save. It's not us for us, not up to us to define who that might be. And then we remember, before we sought God, he sought us. 
Before we loved him, he loved us. And there is no sinner who is found who is not also changed. It's that free, a repentant heart, one who is generous. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the story of Zacchaeus. We thank you for this kind of, this very neat glimpse into conversion. Lord, what that means to see you call someone, to see a life changed. Lord, a very real situation with a very real ugly sinner. Lord, who was made new. Lord, we rejoice because we realize all of us here who are trusting in Christ, that is our story. You called our name. You changed us. Might we be submissive and aggressive to see that change continue in our heart? Might we be bold to proclaim the good news? Because you came to save and to seek. You came to seek and to save sinners. You won't fail in your mission. We thank you for the privilege of being involved, of following you in that mission. Ask you just for a moment, continue to meditate upon the word that was spoken. Invite the worship team up.